Father, you have made it clear that salvation comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And God, we are a people who gather Sunday after Sunday because we have heard and we have believed. We've believed because of your grace. And we thank you and we praise you for that. And, and we realize that you have given us a responsibility to proclaim the gospel so that others would hear and others would believe and others would call upon your name and be saved. And we want to do that faithfully, Lord. But we go out week after week and sometimes we attempt to proclaim the gospel and yet people reject it. And we've gone out in the past and we've proclaimed the gospel and yet people have rejected it and we wonder why. God, why is this happening? Why, why won't they believe? And it's passages like this that remind us that salvation is of grace. That even in our evangelism, even as faithful as we are to what You've commanded us to do, we have to rely upon Your grace. We have to rely upon Your Spirit to give life. And so, Father, we pause even now to pray for those whom You will send us to this week, that You would begin moving in their hearts, revealing to them their need for a Savior. That God, even now, You would reveal Yourself to some who have gathered with us this morning who need to hear these things so that they might believe, so that they might call on the name of the Lord themselves and be saved. God, we need to hear these things again, to be reminded, uh, not only for our own encouragement, but be reminded um, that when we go out to be the church in the world, we are desperate for You to move in the lives of those we love around us. So God, help us this morning uh, as hearers of Your Word. Help us to understand. And as we understand, Lord, help us be doers of Your Word. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, have you heard that question. Uh, you have probably asked this at some point in your life. It, it's that infamous question of what happens to people who have never heard about Jesus? And it's a good question. Uh, and, and it's one that deserves time and deserves uh, attention and deserves um, biblical explanation. Um, for those who are asking that question. And, and you may be excited to hear an answer for that question, but I, I don't have time for that answer to that question. And that's not the question that this passage asks. It doesn't ask, what about those who have never heard about Jesus? W what happens to them? Are, are they saved? Do, do, must we go to them? Yes, obviously. This passage addresses the question, what about those who have heard and yet have rejected? What about them? And, and this passage is going to help us to understand um, that the Lord 
all the day long is holding his hands out towards them. We know that to be the case in our very own lives. For at the moment we repented of our sins and believed upon him, we realized how near he was to us, that his hands had been open to us all the day long before that, when we were sinning against him over and over and over. That's what That's the question that this passage is addressing, is what about those who have heard about you and yet have rejected? For Paul, in writing this passage, was a good Jew. He had grown in his knowledge and wisdom and obedience to the Lord as a child and as a young man, but he had failed to recognize that Jesus, who lived during Paul's time, was the Messiah. He had failed to realize that Jesus was the one that they had been waiting for, that he was the Christ, the anointed one of God, the Savior of all who would repent and believe until the point when Jesus revealed himself to him on the road to Damascus, blinded him, and yet gave him spiritual sight to be able to see these things. Uh, to believe upon Jesus. And at that point, Paul, everything that Paul had heard and everything that Paul had understood in the past about the Messiah, he saw was true in Jesus. And he believed. And then he spent his entire life trying to help those Jews who had heard about the Messiah and um, had understood what the Messiah would look like to see that it was Christ and to believe upon Christ. And even Gentiles who um, had not known about the Messiah, that, that this was Jesus, the Christ who came to be their Savior. And He cared deeply for them, so much so that in Romans 9, in the opening verses, He talked about His great sorrow and His unceasing anguish for the Jews who had rejected Jesus as their Messiah even says that he would be willing to give up his eternal life in Christ Jesus, his Lord, so that they might have eternal life. And then in Romans 10, in the opening verses, he says that it's his heart's desire and prayer that they might be saved. That that which they had heard, that which they uh, had understood about the Messiah, they would see in Jesus Christ and repent And believe. And then Paul gives us one of the most evangelistic texts in all of God's Word, saying that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. And he says, though, but how will they call upon him? in whom they have not believed. And how will they believe if they've never heard? And how will they hear if no one's proclaimed? And how will they proclaim if no one has been sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach, proclaim good news. And so we finished last week knowing that we are called as God's people, as God's church, to be sent out to be the church in the world to proclaim the good news of the gospel to anyone and everyone who would listen to us. Uh, 
But the question is, maybe you've done that this week. I hope you have. I hope you've considered it. I hope you've prayed towards it. Or maybe you'll do that this week. But what about those who reject the Gospel? What about those who don't respond to the Gospel? Paul goes on in verse 16, and he talks about the response of many in his day and age. Having been sent, having proclaimed, knowing that people had heard, he says in verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the Gospel. That was true then, and it's also true now. And since it's true now, you should write it on your notes. Not all have believed the Gospel. This is what Paul is trying to make clear. But they, that is the Jews, they have not all obeyed the Gospel. What does it mean to obey the Gospel? What does that mean? Because we know we're, we're good doctrinally sound church. We know that salvation is not through obedience, but what does it mean to obey the gospel? Well, it'd be helpful for us to consider the beginning of Romans and the end of Romans, where Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 5 talks, uh, Paul tells that he had received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the nations. Paul's opening his letter saying that obedience to the Gospel is faith. To obey the good news of Jesus Christ is to believe. And then we could go to the very end of his letter to know what this letter is about, lest we forget the very end of the the letter. Romans 16, verse 26. It should sound familiar, church according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of, what's the word? Faith. To bring about the obedience of faith. This is why we entitled this series, From Faith for Faith. Uh, This is what obedience to the Gospel means. And Paul says, though, that they, that is the Jews, they have not all obeyed the Gospel. But he says they have not all obeyed the gospel. Some had believed. The apostles had believed. There were many followers of Jesus at Jesus' death and resurrection who had believed. Paul himself had believed. They hadn't all believed in this Messiah, but some had. Some had believed in, in the gospel, in the good news, and Yet not all had. And Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, where Isaiah, in one of the most quoted Old Testament passages, Isaiah chapter 53, which is that servant song of Isaiah predicting the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53, verse 1, Paul quotes, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Isaiah would go on to say, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? They had 
heard, and yet they had not obeyed the gospel. And Paul summarizes what he had said earlier in in Romans chapter 10, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so hearing is necessary for belief. But hearing doesn't guarantee belief. And we need to remember that. It is our job as followers of Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel so that others may hear, for that is the way that God saves. When people hear the good news, they believe the good news, and they respond in faith in Jesus uh, to that. Hearing is necessary for belief, but hearing does not guarantee belief. For many have heard, but few believe. Jesus understood that many would hear, but only some would believe. And not only that, Jesus knew who would and who would not believe. He knew that hearing doesn't guarantee faith. The Spirit does. John chapter 6, verse 60. When the, many of His disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do not take offense at this. Then, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? Jesus says in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who those. Uh, who were, were, Jesus knew those who were, who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So hearing is necessary for belief, but it doesn't guarantee. We need the Spirit to move on our hearts so that we might believe. And when we go out sent to proclaim the Gospel, we need the Spirit to move in the lives of those we're proclaiming the Gospel to because hearing is not enough. They need to hear with spiritual ears and see with spiritual eyes and believe with a, a spiritually revived heart. We saw this in the book of Acts when we studied through the book of Acts. That many would not believe. Some would and some wouldn't. When the Gospel was proclaimed, many believed, but some didn't. Some believed and many didn't. As Acts 28-24 reminds us, some were convinced by what He said, but others disbelieved. And this was true of the Jews in their day and age, that not all believed the Gospel. And so then the question that Paul presumes is on the minds of those people is, well, if they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, surely they didn't hear it. Surely they didn't hear that Jesus had done all that He had done and said all that He had said and died and, and rose from them. Surely they didn't hear it. 
But Paul assures them in verse 18, no, they, they heard it. Which brings us to the truth that not even all who hear believe the Gospel. In verse 18, Paul says, but I asked, have they not heard? To which he says, indeed they have. And then Paul quotes to prove this from the Old Testament in Psalm 19, verse 4. And in Psalm 19, verse 4, we, we find one of um, the most memorable psalms in, in the entire Psalter. Psalm 19 is that psalm that talks so eloquently about the Word of God, the law of God, in I think 7 through the end of the chapter. 19, 7 through the end of the chapter. But in the beginning part of the chapter, David, the psalmist of this psalm, he talks about creation. And he talks about how creation has declared the glory of God. And it's in this short psalm that we have both uh, a description of God's general revelation and God's special revelation. God's general revelation of Himself to the world is creation. Creation, as Paul made very clear in Romans chapter 1, has declared His handiwork and has shown that He is God. His omnipotent power and divine nature have been clearly seen ever since the beginning of the foundation of the world. That's God's general revelation. And because God has revealed Himself generally in all of creation, all mankind is without excuse, for we've sinned against Him. Everyone can look out at creation as broken as it is, as groaning as it is, if you remember back from Romans chapter 8, it still cries out that God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and of everything. And that we ought to repent and believe. But God has gone another step. He's not just revealed Himself generally in creation. He has gone another step and has revealed Himself specially in His Word. God's special revelation is the Word of God. You, if you have a Bible in your hands, you are holding God's special revelation. Moments in which God specifically spoke to individuals and they wrote His words down that were copied and translated for us to be able to hold God's special revelation to us. This is a gift. This is such a gift. And, and we have this as a gift, but Paul's not talking simply about this. He actually says that the gospel, uh, surely they've heard the gospel, and then he quotes Psalm 19.4 about general revelation about creation. That all of creation cries out that there is a God. And he says that the gospel is like creation in that the whole world has heard it. And yet, we often talk about how there are people around the world who have never heard the Gospel. But this is what Paul is trying to make the point about. He quotes from Psalm 19, verse 4, speaking about creation 
their voice, that is creation's voice, has gone out to all the earth, and their words, that's creation's words, to the ends of the world. And Paul is saying what was true about creation is also true about the gospel, that it's gone out to the ends of the earth. But is that true? I want you to wrestle with that for a second because we tell you often that it hasn't. And we want you to go to make the gospel known. So how is Paul saying that the Jews have heard and holding the Jews accountable saying that the gospel's gone to the end? I think what John Stott writes regarding this verse is very helpful. He says, if God wants the general revelation of His glory to be universal, how much more must He want the special revelation of His grace to be universal too? If God wanted to make Himself known in creation to the entire world, how much more does He not want to make the Gospel known to the end of the world? And so he has established a plan for that to happen, and it was actually happening. The gospel had gone from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth through the apostles. Now, yeah, maybe not every specific individual of the nation of Israel had heard the good news of Jesus in that way. Paul was probably using some sort of hyperbole like he was using in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. He says, And you were reconciled, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister." What is, what is Paul saying? He's saying that the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. That the gospel is not just stuck to Jerusalem with just the Jews, but it's gone to the Gentiles also, which is representative that it's gone to the ends of the world. It's gone to a people who have not even been looking for it and seeking for it. And in fact, it really had gone to the ends of the Roman Empire, the known world at that time. There was gospel influences all around the known world. And so, yes, they had heard. God had begun the process of not only His general revelation going to the ends of the earth, but the, His special revelation going to the ends of the earth. And we are benefactor, uh, benefactors of that. We've benefited from this good news going to the ends of the earth. And yet there was a time in our life when we had probably heard the good news of the gospel and yet had not believed. It, for many of us, it took many times hearing the good news of God's grace, rejecting it time after time after time. Maybe month after month or year after year, your parents preaching the good news to you or family, other family members or co-workers or Sunday school teachers or friends at school over and over and over. And yet there came a point where everything that we had heard finally made sense and we believed 
and we called upon the name of the Lord. And there are people in your life whom you are sent out to every week to go and proclaim the gospel to that may hear it this week and reject it. Did they reject it because they hadn't heard it? No, they rejected it because they had yet to believe it. God had yet to open their eyes to those things. Hearing is necessary for faith, but it doesn't guarantee faith. We need God's help in those moments as we proclaim the gospel that people would not just hear, but they would hear. Hear me when I say that. They, they don't just need to hear your eloquent, smooth um, sharing of the gospel. And it's not dependent upon you not stumbling over your words. For how many of us, how many of you have sat under 10 years of stumbling preacher talk and yet the wor God's Word do a work in your life, not because of me, but because of God's Spirit in your life? And how many people have heard someone stumble over the gospel only to hear that Jesus died and rose from the dead to take away their sins and they repented and believed and that's all they knew? You need the Spirit's help in your evangelism for you know that you needed the Spirit's work in your own life having heard those things yourself and yet not believed them. But Paul presumes another question. Okay, well, they rejected Jesus even though they heard about it, but maybe they just didn't understand it. You know, they heard these things, but they didn't fully comprehend them. And so maybe that's the excuse that, that they have. Verse 19, but I ask, did Israel not understand? Paul doesn't even say, indeed they have, or um, by no means, he just jumps right into the Old Testament and starts giving examples. So the assumption is, oh no, they understood. Trust me, they understood. But please note, not even all who understand believe the gospel. Not all believe the gospel, not even all who hear believe the gospel, but not even all who understand believe the gospel. And this is what Paul tries to make clear uh, from this, uh, from first Moses and then from Isaiah. He quotes from Moses uh, here using two witnesses, and from Moses he quotes in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 21. Paul quotes it this way, I will make you Jews, that is, jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Did Israel understand? Yes, Paul's saying. Paul's saying there is a nation that doesn't understand. There is a foolish nation in the world who doesn't understand the gospel. And for some have not heard even the gospel. But it's not the Jews. It's the Gentiles. And, and Paul is trying to make clear, no, Israel, you understand. You understand more than anybody in the entire world who the Messiah was to be. 
what the Messiah was to look like, what the Messiah was to sound like. You understand that when we're saying Jesus is the Messiah, what we mean by that. For you know all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And, and, and we're telling you that they are coming true or have come true in Jesus Christ. You understand. There's another nation, the Gentiles. They're the ones that don't understand. They're the foolish nation that, that Moses talked about. But not only Moses, he quotes from Isaiah, and he says in verse 20, Isaiah is so bold as to say, and here he quotes from Isaiah 65, verse 1, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. That's the Gentiles. Israel understood it's the Gentiles who didn't understand. And Isaiah was so bold, God was so good to reveal himself to this people who didn't understand, nor did they seek him. They weren't even asking for him. Isaiah puts it this way, not only the first part of 65 verse 1, but the second part, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, this is the Lord, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. So then, here the, here the, the place in history that these are being quoted. Isaiah said, I was ready to be sought I was ready to be found. And Paul is translating that verse after Jesus died and rose from the dead as I have been found and I've shown myself. Something happened in between Isaiah 65 and Romans chapter 10 and it was Jesus. And it was His death on the cross and His resurrection. From what Isaiah said would happen, Paul is saying it happened. And these Jews were good enough Jews to understand that Paul was changing the tense on them, saying that this has been fulfilled in them. This is how kind God is to, to us. For we are the ones that didn't understand. We're a part of the Gentile nation that didn't understand the foolish nation. The nation that didn't even seek God. The nation that didn't even ask for God. That's, who, that's, that's describing our former life before Jesus Christ. But this is, this is the exact opposite of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened to you. But Jesus, church, remember, He's been so gracious to you that even though you didn't ask, even though you didn't seek, 
even though you didn't knock, He revealed Himself to you. He made Himself known to you. He opened up your mind and your heart to understand these things, first and foremost, so that you would ask, you would seek, and you would knock. God in these verses and Jesus as the fulfillment of these verses is a lot like Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Who, who's the one knocking now? It's Jesus. He's the one standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Israel understood these things. There was another nation who didn't understand these things. And God made it known to them as well. But He goes on to describe Israel in verse 21. And listen to this. But of Israel, He says, emphatically, that little phrase, all day long, is emphatic as Paul is writing this from Isaiah chapter 65, verse 2, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All day long. And you can just imagine the, the imagery that Isaiah wrote about and Paul now brings back that that God Himself is, is reaching out His hand all day long. My hands have been open to you, ready for you to turn. You've heard, you've understood, just turn. Repent and come back to Me. But instead, Isaiah said that they were wanting to go their own way and follow their own devices. This sounds, these words of God in Isaiah sound a lot like Jesus' words to Jerusalem in Matthew 23. Oh, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing Israel had heard. Israel had understood. And yet, they had still rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And yet, there was a whole other group of people who had never heard, who had never understood. The Gentiles who God had made known the Gospel to. That God had helped them to understand. Even though they didn't have as Paul said earlier in Romans, all the privileges that Israel had, all of the Sunday school classes growing up and all of the history and the stories and all of the promises and all of the commandments and all the Word of God, the Gentiles didn't have any of that and God made Himself known to them still so that they would understand and believe. This is the, the reality of of Paul's day and age. It's the reality of, of our day and age too, too. It was true of Israel, this privileged nation then. They had heard 
And they had understood and yet they had rejected the gospel. And I think it's fair to say that we too, our culture, many people living in at least the south of America, the what's nicknamed the Bible Belt, we have a privileged culture, uh, a privileged gospel culture where we have grown up with churches on every corner. We've grown up with Christian parents that drug us to church uh, as a kid just as we're dragging you to church. Uh, we've grown up just assuming Jesus. Uh, we've grown up hearing about it often, being invited often. Many of your neighbors, many of your co-workers, many of your friends, they, they've heard of Jesus. And Jesus is their homeboy, but He's not their Savior. Je they, they love you know, and would call themselves Christians, but they don't know Christ. They've yet to repent and turn from their sins and follow Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. And so I think it's fair to say that, well, maybe well, you, you ask the question, well, maybe they haven't heard. No, they've heard. Well, maybe they haven't understood. Maybe, but maybe they have understood. And yet, what was God's posture towards those people still? Turn? Give them the stiff arm? Come. Come on. What, what ought to be our posture towards those family members who have rejected your gospel year, Thanksgiving after Thanksgiving, or Christmas after Christmas? Come on wanting to live more of a faithful life so that they would see it more fully in your life, uh, see the gospel in your life, that we would be so faithful that they know. <laughs> we joked about this this week that now i got to even take these stupid glasses off to like wipe my tears. That we, we joked about like Graham every week. He says, as you know, every week we pray for the nations. It should be so consistent in our life that people, you get to Thanksgiving and they're like, as you know, I'm going to have to share the gospel at some point in, in my life. But that we do so not pointing the finger, but like, I do this because I want you to come. I want you to know what I know from them. That was... God's disposition and posture towards the Jews. That was Jesus' posture and disposition towards the Jews in His day. It was Paul's posture towards the Jews of His day. It ought to be our posture towards, yes, the Jews, but also the Gentiles as well who grew up privileged to hear the Gospel as well. We, we ought to have that posture. We ought to know that hearing is necessary for faith, but it does not guarantee faith. We need God's help in this. For not even all who hear believe, and not even all who understand believe. That reminds us that we need God's grace in this. And that's exactly what Paul then goes to. 
if Israel has rejected Jesus, even though they've heard of Him, and even though they've understood the gospel, they've still rejected. Paul asked the question in chapter 11, verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected His people? What does the posture of the previous verse tell us? By no means. He has not rejected His people with a stiff arm. He's opened His arms to them. By no means has He rejected them. How does does Paul know that? And how ought they know this? Paul says, the first reason you know that God has not rejected the Jews is that I'm a Christian, Paul says. Surely he, he hasn't rejected all of us because I'm a Christian. For I myself, Paul says, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. How do I know, Paul says, that God hasn't rejected the Jews as a whole? Because I'm a Christian. He revealed Himself to me. The apostles are Jews. There's a Jewish church in Jerusalem whom Jesus' brother is presiding over, James. There are many. Remember the, what, what, what the verse said in verse 16? But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Some had though. And Paul says, I'm one of them. Has God rejected His people? By no means. I, he hadn't rejected me. Even though I rejected Him and rejected those who accepted Him and persecuted them for their faith. But there was a second reason. Uh, not only um, in, in this text, not only are we seeing that not all believe the gospel, but I want you to note that neither has God rejected all people. Not all have believed the gospel, but neither has God rejected all people. And in these first six verses, we're seeing that He is saving a remnant by grace, of which Paul is a part. God is saving a remnant by grace, of which Paul is the first proof, but there's a second proof. There's a second proof in verse 2. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Now you, that, that word foreknew might remind you back of Romans chapter 8 where we spent time considering that golden chain of salvation. Um, and of course, God hadn't rejected those whom He foreknew. Because Romans chapter 8 said that everyone he foreknew, he predestined. And everyone he predestined, he called. And everyone he called, he justified. And everyone he justified, he will glorify. But Paul said it's as sure as fact that I'm going to say it in the past tense. He has been glorified. And so, of course, God has not rejected those whom He foreknew because otherwise He would not be good, make good on His other word. And He proves this. He proves this using 1 Kings chapter 19. And chapter 18 is the context. I read it earlier 
It may be familiar to you, but in case it's not, and even if the context of it is not, uh, let me give you a little bit of it. I think it will be helpful. This second proof that God had not rejected Israel altogether is, is the story of Elijah back in the Old Testament uh, again. And this was after Elijah had gone up to Mount Carmel to face off with the prophets of the false god Baal. Where in 1 Kings 18.21, it says that Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go? Listen. Limping between two different opinions. What were the two different opinions? God or false gods? God or Baal? And he said, If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And so he tested the 450 prophets of Baal and said, let's have a duel. You build your altar, I'm going to build my altar. You put your sacrifice on it, I'm going to put my sacrifice on it. I'm even going to let you go first. I want you to call on your God to bring down fire from heaven on, on your altar. And it says that from morning till noon, they cried out to their God. 450 of them crying out to their God, cutting themselves, wailing, moaning, all kinds of things. And yet at noon, nothing had happened. And so it was Elijah's turn. And Elijah not only let them go first, he took water and dumped it all over his altar so that there was water all around the, the altar there. And he called down fire from heaven, praying to the Lord. And the Lord rained down fire on the altar. And it consumed not only the sacrifice, but all of the altar uh, around him. And it was at that point that Elijah said, the Lord, He is God. God had proven it that, that day. Who was God? That He was, not the prophets of Baal. And it, it was at that point that uh, Elijah had the 450 prophets of Baal killed. All of the prophets who did the dirty work of evil Queen Jezebel. So what do you think Queen Jezebel thought about that? Probably wasn't that happy when this one prophet of Yahweh, whom she hated, had 450 of her prophets of Baal killed. And so Jezebel was out for blood. And she went for Elijah, and Elijah ran away. And he went to a cave. And he went inside a cave and the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah came near to all the people, and this is what Paul brings up in uh, chapter, 11, verse 30, uh, in chapter 11, verse 3. But I want to read it from 1 Kings 18, 20, uh, or 19, verse 10. He said, in response to God asking, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, 
thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. To which, immediately after Elijah says that, there was this wind upon wind and an earthquake that shook the mountain and a fire on that mountain of which Elijah thought the Lord was speaking through, but it turned out the Lord was speaking through a still, small voice and the Lord came and asked him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? Saying, why have you run away to this cave? Why are you hiding? If I'm God, I'm God. He says, what are you doing here? To which Elijah responded the exact same thing as he had done in verse 10. In verse 14, I've been very jealous for you, Lord. You can imagine him like yelling it. Like, in case you didn't hear me the first time. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Elijah says it not only once, but twice. And what is God's response? God told Elijah, go back to Jerusalem. Anoint these people, this man as king in this place, this man as king in this place, and anoint uh, Elisha to uh, take your place. And God says, in that moment, you're not alone. I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. How does Paul know that God has not rejected his people? Because God has never rejected his people. Even when I, I, Elijah uh, thought he was the only one left. I, only I am left. I'm the only one who's not bowed the knee to Baal. God said, no, you're not. No, you're not. There's 7,000 still left. Had God rejected His people? By no means. God is always faithful to save a remnant. Which is why Paul says in verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. In Paul's day, though it looked like most of the Jews had rejected him. Every time he went to a new city, Jews rejecting him. In the synagogue, Jews rejecting him. Even though they'd heard, even though they've understood, they've rejected him. So too at the present time, Paul says, there is a remnant chosen by grace. There are a few. Not all have rejected Jesus. Many have, but there are some who have received him and they've received him by grace. Verse 6, but if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, and I love this, grace would no longer be grace. If there was anything that we could add to it, it would not be by grace. If we simply heard 
and understood and chose to follow Jesus on our own, then we would have something to boast in. But even that, we're not able to boast because it was God's grace that opened our ears to hear. And it was God's grace that opened our eyes to see. And it was God's grace that gave us a heart to believe these things so that grace would be grace and so that we would praise Him as a part of that remnant. God has not rejected His people, the Jews, as a, as a whole. Even amidst the Jews, there are still some who are coming to faith in Jesus even among the Gentiles, not all the Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus, but there is a remnant of even them. Many are coming to faith in Jesus. There is a remnant. God is saving a remnant by grace. Verses 1 through 6, but verses 7 through 10 in closing, we also have to realize, but the rest are hardened. Now, it's one thing to accept God's sovereignty in salvation and God's uh, foreknowing and God's predestining and God's electing and God's choosing in salvation. It's a whole other thing to accept that God hardens some. That's hard to accept. And yet, this is what Paul is making clear. What then? In verse 7, Israel failed to obtain what, what it was seeking. That's not a, a question. That's a statement. What then is the question? The statement is Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. But he clarifies it. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The nation as a whole failed to obtain what it was seeking. But there was a remnant. A remnant of the elect that obtained it. But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Quoting Isaiah 29 as well as Deuteronomy 29 there, using both of these witnesses that he had used earlier to use them again. And here's where we need to realize God has done a, a work of hardening on the Jews. But God does not harden those who haven't hardened themselves against the Lord. We've all hardened ourselves against the Lord. And God gives over to hardening some while He shows His grace towards some as well. And God is using this partial hardening on the Jews so that the Gentiles would come to faith in Jesus. And God, Paul is going to make this clear, as we'll see in Romans chapter 11, that this partial hardening of the Jews is what brings about His grace and mercy to the Gentiles. And when the 
full number of the Gentiles come to faith in Jesus, it will make the Jews so jealous that they'll then turn in great numbers back to Jesus as the Messiah. This is what Paul is trying to show, that God is sovereign over these things and He's working in these things. He even quotes David and says in verse 9, Psalm 69, 22 and 23, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This was a, it says that David says, I think it'd be faithful to even say that David prays. This is a prayer in Psalm 69 against those who are persecuting David. And David prays, let their table become a snare and a trap. Those who are persecuting David and his kingdom. Now I want you to imagine, if that's David's prayer, what would happen if Jesus were to read the Psalms and to pray that prayer? Who would be the people who are rejecting and persecuting him? It would be the Jews. And so Jesus, if he took Psalm 69 on his lips, then Jesus himself would be praying, let their table become a snare and a trap. A table, a place of provision, a place of sustenance, a place of peace, a place of hospitality, a place of welcoming, that their table then became a trap to them. Their table became a snare to them. They thought they were good on their own rather than thinking they ought to turn to Christ who was the Messiah. And their partial hardening has opened up this season in redemption history where many Gentiles are coming to faith, but many Jews are stumbling, tripping over Jesus, who is the stone in Zion, the, the stumbling stone. But I, I want us to consider regarding that language of David, just a couple things in closing, that their table became a snare and a trap. And I'm so thankful that Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, sat at a, a different table. And he took the table with bread and wine on it and made it a reminder to all who would turn to him to be not a, a trap and a snare, but a, a sign of him saying, come. Come to me, all who are thirsty. Come to me, all who are hungry. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. In fact, that's what he, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to your little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and 
anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is why he says in Revelation, come, all who are thirsty, come to him. Whether you've heard in the past or you've heard for the first time this morning, whether you understood in the past or you understood for the first time this morning, come. Don't turn away from Christ again as the Jews did over and over and over. Come to Him. Realize that you who weren't even seeking, you who weren't even asking, the Gospel's been made known to you. Realize that in this season of redemptive history as the Jews have rejected Jesus for the most part, God is saving a remnant of them. And God is saving many around the nations, including you. And the more of us that are saved, the more jealous the Jews will be of the salvation that we've received and the more of them will come to faith in Jesus. That's what Paul makes clear in Romans 11. Not all have believed this gospel. Not even all who have heard it. Not even all who have understood it. But God is faithful to save a remnant. By His grace, even though some are being hardened at this point. And it's to this gospel that we have believed that we have come in obedience of faith that we want to remember this morning as a church. As Christians, we want to remember Christ who died and rose from the dead to accomplish this salvation in our life as we eat and as we drink in remembrance of Christ. And so in our closing song of worship to, to the Lord and as we sing about His grace, I want us to I want to invite you, if you have heard, if you've understood, if you have then believed and called upon the name of the Lord to be saved and has followed Him in baptism, I want to invite you to come to this table. This table that is not a snare, that is not a trap, but is a a place of provision, a place of salvation, a place of remembrance of God's goodness and grace towards us, and that we would remember it again this morning as Christ's church, as His body, to go out this week and to be the church in the world, proclaiming the good news so that more would hear, that more would understand, and with the Spirit's help, more would believe. So I want to invite you to stand at this time. I want to invite you to come I'm going to pray before we eat and we drink uh, of these elements that remind us of Christ's body and His blood. But let's together as Christ's church, let's use this as a moment to once again come to the Lord who has open arms towards you. And let's bring to Him that which wearies us and holds us down, our sin and temptation and the sufferings that we experience, and let's lay them down at His feet. And let's be reminded of the good news of Jesus Christ who died and rose from the dead.